0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Podcorn.com. What in the world, you say, is Podcorn.com? Got a podcast that you need to monetize? Have a small business you want to advertise? Podcorn.com is the one-stop shop for all of that. It is a fabulous platform that I myself have used to get sponsorship for Your Brain on Facts. Podcorn is a quick, easy way to find sponsors for your show or to find podcasts to advertise your business on. Do as much or as little advertising as you want, work with the brands you want to work with, and there is no upfront cost. Podcorn is the ideal solution whether you're looking to spend $100 or $1,000. Check it out today at podcorn.com or look for the link in the show notes. Hello my beautiful brainiacs, we're doing something a little different for what I guess you could call our Halloween special. Rather than doing just one topic, I put the question to our patrons at patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts, what do you want to hear about for the Halloween episode? And we got some good suggestions, but since I didn't get two people saying any one topic, I thought, why don't I just cover them all? So let's get right into it. My name's Moxie, and this is your brain on facts. Brandy B asked that we sort fact from fiction on Vlad Dracula. Personally, I can't remember a time when I didn't know that Vlad the Impaler was thought to be the inspiration for Bram Stoker's genre defining vampire Dracula. Hop in your magic school bus, police box, or phone booth with aerial antenna, and let's go back to 15th century Wallachia, a region of modern-day Romania that was then the southern neighbor to the province of Transylvania. Our Vlad was Vlad III. Vlad II, his father, was given the nickname Dracul by his fellow crusade knights in the Order of the Dragon. They were tasked with defeating the Ottoman Empire. Wallachia was sandwiched between the Ottomans and Christian Europe, and so became the site of constant bloody conflict. Without looking it up, I'm going to guess that the Order of the Dragon failed since the Ottoman Empire was still standing in 1923. Dracul translated to dragon in Old Romanian, but the modern meaning is more like devil. Add an A to the end to denote son of, and you've got Vlad Dracula. At age 11, Vlad and his seven-year-old brother Radu went with their father on a diplomatic mission into the Ottoman Empire. How'd it go? Not too good. The three were taken hostage. Their captors told Vlad II that he could be released if his two sons remained behind. Since it was really their only option, he agreed. The boys would be held prisoner for five years. One account holds that they were tutored in the art of war, science, and philosophy. Other accounts say that they were subjected to torture and brutal abuse. By the time Vlad II returned to Wallachia, he was overthrown in a coup, and he and his eldest son were murdered. Shortly thereafter, Vlad III was released with a taste for violence and a vendetta against the Ottomans. To regain his family's power and make a name for himself, he threw a banquet for hundreds of members of rival families. On the menu was wine, meat, sweetbreads, and gruesome, vicious murder. The guests were stabbed not quite to death, then impaled on large spikes. This would become Vlad's signature move— leading to his moniker Vlad the Impaler, but it wasn't the only arrow in his quiver. Facing an army three times the size of his, he ordered his men to infiltrate their territory, poison the wells, and burn the crops. He also hired diseased men to go in and infect the enemy. Defeated combatants were often treated to disemboweling, flaying alive, boiling, and of course, impalement. Basically, you turn your enemy into a kebab and let them die slowly, and, just as importantly, conspicuously. Vlad's reputation spread, leading to a mixing of legend and fact, like that he once took dinner in a veritable forest of spikes. We do know that in June of 1462, he ordered 20,000 defeated Ottomans to be impaled. It's a scale that's hard to even imagine. When the Ottoman sultan Mehmed II came upon the carnage, he and his men turned on their heels and fled back to Constantinople. You'd think Vlad was on the road to victory, but shortly thereafter, he was forced into exile and imprisoned in Hungary. He took a stab, no pun intended, on regaining Wallachia 15 years later, but he and his troops were ambushed and killed. According to a contemporary source the Ottomans cut his corpse into pieces and marched it back to the Sultan, who ordered the pieces displayed over the city's gates. There is no historical record of where the pieces ultimately ended up. Vlad the Impaler was an undeniably brutal ruler, but he's still considered one of the most important rulers in Wallachian history for protecting it against the Ottomans and a national hero of Romania. He was even praised by Pope Pius II during his life for his military feats in defending Christendom. So how did we get from Vlad Dracula, the Impaler, the warrior king with a taste for torture, to 400 years later, Dracula, the undead creature of the night, who must feed on the blood of the living, can morph into bats or mist and must sleep in his native earth? Historians have speculated that Irish author Bram Stoker met historian Herman Baumberger, who told him about the exploits of Vlad III, which ignited some spark of inspiration. But there isn't actually any evidence to back that up. What we can say is that Stoker's is the first literary account we can find of a vampire drinking blood. Vampires are actually a common folklore baddie around the world, From the obeifo in Africa, which can take over people's body and emits phosphorus light from its armpits and anus, to the mononongal of the Philippines, who can detach her torso from her legs so she can fly around with her organs trailing behind her and use her snake-like tongue to steal babies from the womb. In Western culture, though, Vlad the Impaler became the basis for everything from Bela Lugosi's Dracula to Count Chocula. That means he's also the source of the Twilight Saga. Truly, history's greatest monster. Ronnie asked for, quote, how some legends got their stars. I'm not sure exactly what he meant, so I asked for clarification. No, of course I didn't. I launched off immediately and at a full gallop with the first interpretation that came to mind as I do in all aspects of my life. So let's talk horror actors and the Hollywood Walk of Fame. A quick rundown on what the Walk of Fame is and how it works. The famed sidewalk full of stars with names on them was the idea of the president of the Hollywood Chamber of Commerce to, quote, "...maintain the glory of a community whose name means glamour and excitement in the four corners of the world." It would take them seven years before they actually started it, and originally only honored work in five categories. Motion picture, television, recording or music, and radio. That was 1956. It would be 1984 before theater and live performance was added. Anyone can nominate a celebrity for a star and go through the rigorous application process, but that application has to include a letter of agreement from the nominee or his or her management the nominee also has to be present for the presentation in the star which must be scheduled within five years of approval or i guess they lose their spot and there's the little matter of the forty thousand dollar fee this covers the cost to create install and maintain the star which is made of brass and terrazzo a material that can be made with chipped granite or marble bonus fact Legendary cowboy entertainer Gene Autry is the only person to have a star in all five categories. One of his stars was actually stolen, as were stars belonging to Jimmy Stewart, Kirk Douglas, and Gregory Peck. Let's look at some of the Halloweeniest people to get a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Even if he weren't a recognizable face, Vincent Price is probably the most recognizable voice in horror movie history. For folks my age, you probably heard him for the first time on Michael Jackson's Thriller. Darkness falls across the land. The midnight hour is close at hand. Creatures crawl in search of blood to terrorize your neighborhood. Folks about 10 years younger than me might have heard him for the first time as Professor Ratigan in The Great Mouse Detective. Price wasn't always a horror icon. He did theater, radio, including Orson Welles' Mercury Theater of the Air, and other genres of film. But it was 1953's House of Wax, which was also the first 3D movie to crack the top 10 box office gross for its year, which solidified Price's place in horror movies. It's almost odd that Vincent Price went into acting at all, His father was the president of the National Candy Company, and his grandfather had set the family up with independent means, thanks to his brand of cream of tartar. For the non-foodies out there, it's used in meringues and baking. Price and his wife Mary wrote a number of cookbooks, one of which my mother had when I was young. You cannot fathom my confused disappointment that it was just a regular cookbook, full of regular boring, old, non-scary recipes. And now, for no other reason than it makes me smile, is another amazing voice, Stephen Fry, talking about having met Vincent Price. Another man I was very proud to have met, the Hammer film of The Witchfinder General, starred Vincent Price. You just wanted to say things like, could you pass the mustard to... (laughs) I I got him to say the line that I loved, it was from one of those films where he's strangely bound up in some weird bandages. Pray speak quietly every sound you make is exquisite agony to me. (laughs) Romanian-born Bela Lugosi was a classical actor in Hungary before making the move to movies. In fact, he was already playing Dracula on stage when the movie was being assembled. Lugosi wanted the role so badly, he agreed to do it for $500 a week, about $9,000 today. Only one quarter of the salary of actor David Manners, who played Jonathan Harker. It was a good investment, I'd say, since everyone knows Bela Lugosi, and this was the first time I'd ever seen the name David Manners. Though Lugosi turned down the role of the monster in Frankenstein, he was quickly locked into horror. He appeared in minor roles in a few good movies, once playing opposite Greta Garbo, but he mostly bounced like a Plinko chip, down the scale from mediocre to bad with ever-decreasing budgets. His drug addiction probably had a cyclical relationship with his work prospects. He died two days into filming the absolutely dreadful Plan 9 from Outer Space, and was replaced by a younger, taller actor and his ex-wife's chiropractor because he happened to fit the costume. Peter Lorre is a name you might not recognize, but you would absolutely recognize his overall aesthetic. It's still being referenced and parodied to this day, See that bad guy? Is he short, with round eyes, and a distinctive way of speaking? What you've got there is Peter Lorre. Hungarian-born Lorre struck out at age 17 to become a star. For 10 years, he played bit parts in amateur productions, but in 1931 got his big break in the German film M, and Hollywood took notice. His first English-speaking role was in the Hitchcock thriller The Man Who Knew Too Much. The character spoke English, but Laurie didn't. Just as, as many people know, Bela Lugosi didn't speak English during his first turn as Dracula, Laurie had to memorize his lines phonetically. Just try to imagine how difficult it must be to put the right pacing and inflection into a sentence when you don't know which words mean what. He played a number of baddies and other deranged types until John Huston cast him in a semi comic role in The Maltese Falcon with Humphrey Bogart and Sidney Greenstreet, which led to lighter roles like the one he played in Arsenic and Old Lace. If you've never seen that movie, make it your next movie night choice. It's a comedy, but you can definitely watch it alongside your horror movies since it's about a pair of serial killers hiding bodies in their cellar. Arsenic and Old Lace also features a bad guy getting plastic surgery to avoid the police, which accidentally leaves him looking like Boris Karloff, and he's really touchy about it. I don't know why. Even though Karloff played many monsters and villains in his career, he was said to be a kind, soft-spoken man who was happiest with a good book or working in his garden. We hear him narrate how the Grinch stole Christmas every year. He doesn't sing the song You're a Mean One, Mr. Grinch, though. That's Thurl Ravenscroft, who was also the original voice for Tony the Tiger. The title role in Frankenstein took Karloff from bit player to household name. Karloff said of the monster, He was inarticulate, helpless, and tragic. I owe everything to him. He's my best friend. By the way, if you're one of those people who delight in going, um, actually, Frankenstein was the name of the doctor, can you not? We all know that. And since it's the last name of the man who gave him life, a.k.a. his father, it's a perfectly passable patronym for him to use. Oh, and by the way, Mr. or Mrs. Superior Nerd, Frankenstein wasn't a doctor. He was a college dropout. I refer you to my much-beloved Red at Overly Sarcastic Productions on YouTube for a thorough explanation of the actual story. Link in the show notes. I will say Penny Dreadful did get pretty close in their interpretation. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places—Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan— Kat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Now here's a name more people should know. John Carradine. Wait, the guy from Kill Bill? No, that was his son, David. Oh, you mean the FBI guy the sister was dating on Dexter? No, that's his other son, Keith. Revenge of the Nerds? No, that's his son, Robert. The patriarch, John Carradine, was in over 500 movies. Big names like The Grapes of Wrath and A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, but he also did a lot of horror. Though it could be a mixed bag. Everything from the House of Dracula down to Billy the Kid versus Dracula. Not always for the love of it, either. Sometimes, a gig's just a gig. He told one of his sons, Just make sure that if you've got a role you don't like, it makes you a lot of money. That is good advice for many areas of life. If you've got Prime Video or Shudder, look for The Monster Club. It is a darling, schlocky little anthology movie, which they just don't make anymore, starring Caradine and Vincent Price. Now, Jamie Lee Curtis could have been on this list, a couple people did suggest it, since she was in five of the Halloween films, but I just don't think people think horror when they hear the name Jamie Lee Curtis. And there are some horror-themed names that are surprisingly not set in stone in Hollywood. While the Man of a Thousand Faces, Lon Chaney, who played the original Phantom of the Opera and Hunchback of Notre Dame, does have a star, his son, Lon Chaney Jr., who played The Wolfman, The Mummy, and numerous other roles in dozens of horror movies, does not. Somehow, Christopher Lee doesn't have one either. In addition to the 282 roles on his IMDb page, he deserves a star just for playing Dracula ten times and still having a career after that. Also, he was metal as f- <laughs> recording metal albums into his 80s, and then there was the time he corrected director Peter Jackson on what it's like when you stab someone, because he knew. My buddies over at Cutting Class Podcast diverged from their usual format to tell us all about his amazing life, and I might as well link you to that one, too. When the suggestions at patreon.com yourbrainonfacts were exhausted, I headed over to the Brainiac Breakroom on Facebook. Oh, you're trying to get away from Facebook? As we all should? Well, guess who's on Reddit now? Big thanks to listener Zach for setting up a subreddit. If you're on Reddit, head over to r slash yourbrainonfacts and feel free to stick up any interesting stuff that you find. In the Brainiac Break Room, Alyssa asked for the history behind clowns being evil. One day, a man dressed up as a clown, and it was awful. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. No? Okay. Fine. It's not like I don't have to research them and keep looking at pictures of clowns, but whatever. Now, clowns weren't really regarded as frightening, or at least a fear of clowns wasn't widely acknowledged, from the creation of what we would recognize as a clown by Joseph Grimaldi in the 1820s until relatively recently. David Carleon, author, playwright, and former Ringling Brothers clown, argued that cholerophobia, the fear of clowns, was born from the counterculture of the 1960s but really picked up steam in the 1980s. There is no ancient fear of clowns, he said. It's not like there was this panic rippling through Madison Square Garden as I walked up through the seats. Not at all. For centuries, clowns were a funny thing for kids. There was Bozo and Ronald McDonald and Red Skelton's Clem Cadiddlehopper and Emmett Kelly's sad clown, and then, bam, Stephen King's IT the clown doll in Poltergeist, and every incarnation of the Joker. It could be seen as a pendulum swing. Clowns had been so far to the good side that it must have been inevitable that they would swing way the hell over to the evil side. Not so fast, argues Benjamin Radford, author of the book Bad Clowns, who argues that evil clowns have always been among us. It's a mistake to ask when clowns turned bad, because historically, they were never really good. Sometimes they're making you laugh. Other times, they're laughing at your expense. Radford traced bad clowns all the way back to ancient Greece, and connects them to court jesters and the harlequin. He points particularly to Punch of the Punch and Judy puppet show that dates back to the 1500s. Punch is not only not sweet and lovable, he was violent, abusive, and even homicidal. Maybe when isn't as important as why. Why are some of us afraid of clowns? Personally, I think it is their complete disregard for personal space. Kindly keep your grease-painted face at least arm's length away. Thank you very much. The grease paint may be part of it, it exaggerates the features. The face is basically human in composition, all the parts are in the right place, but at the same time, it's not. It dangles us over the edge of the uncanny valley, where something makes us uncomfortable because it's almost human. Plus, the makeup obscures the wearer's identity, so we don't really know who we're dealing with. Clowns also act in aberrant ways, contrary to societal norms and expectations, and that might subconsciously get our back up. As for colrophilia, sexual attraction to clowns, I got nothing. You do you, boo. Charlie asked for The Real History Behind Popular Horror Icons Like Werewolves, Vampires, and Zombies even though the zombie craze held on a little longer than the 2017 obsession with bacon most people don't know about them pre-george romero's night of the living dead the word zombie first appeared in english print around 1810 in the book history of brazil but this was zombie spelled z-o-m-b-i with no e a western african deity the word later came to suggest a husk of a body without vital life energy, human in form, but lacking self-awareness, intelligence, and self-determination. The Atlantic slave trade had brought the idea across the ocean, where Western African religions began to mix with forced Christianity. Pop culture continually intermixes many African diasporic traditions and portrays them all as voodoo. However, most of what is portrayed in movies, books, and TV is actually hoodoo. Voodoo is a religion that has two markedly different branches, Haitian Vodou and Louisiana Vodun. Hoodoo is neither a religion nor a denomination of a religion. It's a form of folk magic that originated in West Africa and is mainly practiced today in the southern United States. Haitian zombies were said to be people brought back from the dead and sometimes controlled through magical means by voodoo priests called bokors or hougan. Sometimes the zombification was done as a punishment, but often the zombies were said to have been used as slave labor on farms and sugarcane plantations. In 1980, one mentally ill man even claimed to have been held captive by, as a zombie worker, for over 20 years, though he could not lead investigators to the farm where he had worked, and the story could not be verified. To many people, both in Haiti and elsewhere, zombies are very real, and as such, very frightening. Think about it. To the enslaved people, someone else claimed dominion over their body, but they still had their mind and their spirit. What could be more frightening for an enslaved person than an existence where even that is taken from you? That sort of cultural significance doesn't just go away. In the 1980s, a scientist named Wade Davis claimed to have found a powder that could create zombies, thus providing a scientific basis for zombie stories. A powerful neurotoxin called tetrodotoxin which can be found in several animals, including, I'm sure you've already said it out loud, the fugu or pufferfish. Davis claimed that he had infiltrated secret societies of Bokor and obtained several samples of the zombie-making powder, which were later chemically analyzed. Davis wrote a book on the topic, which would later be turned into an underappreciated movie, The Serpent and the Rainbow. He was held up as the man who had scientifically proven the existence of zombies. But skeptics pointed out that the samples of the zombie-making powder were inconsistent, and the amount of neurotoxin they contained wasn't high enough to do what he had claimed. The inconsistency might have been the bigger issue. Tetrodotoxin is not the kind of thing you can play fast and loose with. It has a very narrow band between paralytic and fatal. Others pointed out that no one has ever found any of the alleged plantations filled with zombie laborers. While Davis acknowledged problems with his theories, and had to lay to rest some sensational claims that were being falsely attributed to him, he insisted that the Haitian belief in zombies could be based on a rare happenstance of someone being poisoned by detrototoxin and later coming to disoriented and partially paralyzed, in their coffin. Bonus fact. Ever wonder where we get brain-eating zombies from? Correlation doesn't equal causation necessarily, but the first movie zombie to eat brains was known as Tar Man in 1984's Return of the Living Dead. This wasn't a George Romero movie, though. It was based on a novel called Return of the Living Dead by John Russo, one of the writers of the original Night of the Living Dead. After Russo and Romero parted company, Russo retained the rights to any titles featuring the phrase Living Dead. Sindra asked for movie monster facts. And I see the moon is getting full, so let's hit these facts muy rapido. 1922's Nosferatu was an illegal and unauthorized adaptation of Bram Stoker's Dracula. Stoker's heirs sued over the film, and a court ruling ordered that all copies be destroyed. However, some copies had turned up in other countries and came to be regarded as an influential masterpiece in cinema. Not a single photograph of Lon Chaney as the Phantom in The Phantom of the Opera in 1925 was published in newspapers or magazines, were seen anywhere before the film opened. It was a complete surprise to the audience, and to Cheney's co star, Mary Philbin, whose shriek of fear and disgust was genuine. In the original Dracula, Lugosi never once blinks his eyes on camera. This gives his character a slightly unsettling, otherworldly vibe, even if you don't consciously notice it. Francis Ford Coppola would do something similar, by having Dracula's shadow move slightly independently, like the rules of our world don't apply to him. Even though he starred in the film, Boris Karloff was considered such a no-name nobody that Universal didn't even invite him to the premiere of Frankenstein. Karloff's classic Mummy the next year barely speaks because the actor had so many layers of cotton and makeup glued to his face He could barely move his mouth. The character design for The Creature from the Black Lagoon was based on old 17th-century woodcuts of two strange creatures called the Sea Monk and the Sea Bishop. To make a man invisible for 1933's The Invisible Man, director James Whale had actor Claude Rains dressed completely in black velvet and filmed him in front of a black velvet background. The movie poster for The Mummy, 1932, holds the record for the most money paid for a movie poster at an auction at nearly half a million dollars. Boris Karloff's costume and makeup for 1935's Bride of Frankenstein was so heavy and hot that he lost 20 pounds during filming, mostly through sweat. His shoes weighed 13 pounds, or 6 kilos, or about one stone apiece. The large box office gross for the movie House on Haunted Hill in 1960 was what inspired Alfred Hitchcock to try making a horror picture, which we know as Psycho. Filming the shower scene for Psycho was pretty mundane, but actress Janet Leigh was so terrified by seeing the finished product Thanks to the editing by Alma Revel-Hitchcock and Bernard Herrmann's score, she did not shower, only bathed, from the premiere in 1960 to her death in 2004. You can read more about Alma Revel's hard work in the Your Brain on Facts book. According to our friends Megan and RJ at Ono Lit Class, the first use of Dacata Fugue and G minor in a film the 1962 version of Phantom of the Opera, and it's hard to imagine setting a horror scene without it. In Night of the Living Dead, the body parts the zombies are eating were hams covered in chocolate sauce. George Romero joked that they shouldn't bother putting makeup on the zombies because the choco-pork made them look so pale and sick with nausea anyway. A lot of people know that the Michael Myers mask in the original Halloween was actually a William Shatner mask painted white. They'd bought it on clearance because the film had a very small budget. Most people don't know that Shatner later repaid the favor by dressing up as Michael Myers for Halloween. Freddy Krueger's look was based on a scary drunk man that Wes Craven saw outside his house as a child. His glove made of leather and steak knives and I'm not being flippant, that's what they were made out of, was actually inspired by Craven's cat. Looks down at scratches on both arms. Yep, that scans. The idea of being killed in your sleep comes from the real deaths of people who survived the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia, only to later die mysteriously. Another underappreciated gem, 1987's Monster Squad, had your basic cast of movie monsters, Werewolf, Mummy, Dracula, Frankenstein's monster. But sure if that doesn't look like the Universal Studios movie monster lineup. To avoid confusion and lawsuits, the filmmaker changed the monsters subtly, like removing Dracula's widow's peak and moving Frankenstein's monster's neck bolts up to his forehead. See, they're totally different characters. Yes, those were real bees in the movie Candyman even the ones in Candyman's mouth. Tony Todd had a clause in his contract that would get him $1,000 for every bee sting he got during filming. Even though they used juvenile bees with underdeveloped stingers, he still got $23,000 worth of stings. And you might think 1991's Silence of the Lambs was the first horror movie to win an Oscar. But Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, which I hate to say is actually correctly pronounced Jekyll, and I can't make myself do it, beat them to the punch by 60 years with Frederick Marsh's Oscar for Best Actor. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. And this is normally where I would finish off whatever I opened the show with. But instead, I'll just say, I'm not normally a Halloweeny kind of person. I like it just fine, but I'm not a horror movie watcher and I'm trying to cut out sugar. Hard time of year to do that. But this is a year when we need the things that make us happy. We need them now more than ever. So if your neighbor puts up their Christmas tree on November 1st, just smile and wave. Be happy for them. Thanks for spending part of your day with me and stay safe. Oh, hey, what do you get when you cross a cow and an octopus? A stern rebuke from the Ethics Committee and an immediate cessation of all funding. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Calm Cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long. Calm Cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds, like ocean waves and crackling fires. every night.